Well, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham and Isaac, and it's uh, one of the most important passages in the book of Genesis. Walter Kaiser once said that if one is to understand the Old Testament, or actually if one is to understand the New Testament, then they need to have a decent understanding of the Old Testament. And if we're going to understand the Old Old Testament, we need to have a pretty thorough understanding of Genesis. And then he said if we're going to understand Genesis, we need to understand chapters 1 through 3. But I would also add that Genesis chapter 22 may be one of the most significant chapters, not only in Genesis, but in all the Bible, for our understanding of God and how we deal with Him. And so we, we embark on a very important Study The events that are recorded in Genesis chapter 22 have engendered reams of discussion over the centuries, and deservedly so. Arguments from this passage have been made about the character of God, the nature of faith, the concept of obedience, the principle of substitutionary atonement, and even the authority of Scripture. Theological and philosophical heavyweights from Kierkegaard to Calvin have weighed in on the issues that are raised in Genesis chapter 22. Bob Dylan, in my view, not much of a theologian or a philosopher, but a, but a serious rocker, uh, added his two cents in a song that he wrote in 1965 called Highway 61. He says in this song, O God said to Abraham, kill me a son. Abe said, man, you must be putting me on. God said, no, Abe. Abe said, what? God said, you can do what you want, Abe, but the next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe says, where do you want this killing done? God says, out on Highway 61. Those irreverent words were penned before Dylan's conversion to Christianity, of course. The Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard his view of faith is that it is essentially a leap divorced from reason. That view is largely a result of his study of Genesis chapter 22. The general drift of his classic work on the subject, which was entitled Fear and Trembling, is this. If we were to talk of faith at all, it is something that we cannot explain in any image or language that suffices for people to describe and justify their actions and their attitudes toward one another. Or perhaps, maybe in simpler terms, Christian claims are paradoxical paradoxical and can only be accepted by a leap of faith. In this view, faith in God cannot either be rationally or reasonably or empirically grounded. I want to make it clear, I do have great respect for Soren Kierkegaard. He was no intellectual lightweight, and he did make a positive contribution to the theological discussions of his day. But on this particular issue, I must part company with him. With all due respect, I think he missed the point of Genesis chapter 22 in his very fine text, Fear and Trembling. And unfortunately, the ramifications of that are felt even in our own day. There is a perception in our culture that Christianity is anti-intellectual and must be accepted apart from reason. Younger people in our culture are rightly rebelling against this idea. They should rebel when they are told when it comes to serious life and death, the theological and philosophical issues will just believe. 
they should rebel against that. And I'm happy that they are because for decades, when Christian children asked Christian parents difficult questions, they were given inadequate answers. They asked about the views of Darwin or Freud or Marx. And they were told that those guys are wrong and what they are teaching is anti-biblical, which is correct as far as it goes. But frankly, and I do need mean to speak frankly today, that's a lazy answer that far too often was given to Christian children for decades now. They've grown up thinking that there's no intellectual basis for Christianity. There's no rational or reasonable reason to become a Christian. Just believe. You know, Muslim parents tell their children to just believe as well. Buddhist parents tell their children to just believe as well. What is it about Christianity that makes it something we should believe? That's what we need to be asking ourselves. Ravi Zacharias has identified this very thing as one of the most significant reasons why younger people who have been brought up in very fine and wonderful Christian homes leave the faith during their college days. The, the figures are staggering how many kids leave the faith once they get to college. And I understand why that happens. You know, a, a kid's raised in a very fine Christian home, goes away to college on mom or dad's money. Don't forget that in this equation. Mom and dad are at least smart enough to pay for college, to earn the money to pay for college, but then they get to college. And they run into a biology professor or a professor in, a professor in comparative vertebrate anatomy or something. And they say, listen, uh, Darwin was right. Darwinism is a fact. And if you'll be objective enough, I'll prove it to you. Then the kid goes home for spring break and says, hey, listen, I, I just uh, um, I had this professor that, that told me Darwinism was a fact. Now, what kind of answer would it be if you sat around the kitchen table and said, no, it's not. The Bible doesn't say that. You know, what's, you know what the child's going to do? They're going to say, okay, that's cool. You're right, mom and dad. Then they're going to go back to school and listen to the professor who's giving them data. And guess what? That prof they're going to go talk to the professor. Well, you know, what about my, you know, the Christianity thing? It doesn't seem to line up with what you're teaching. Certainly not the way I was brought up. But my parents don't hold that. You know what the professor's going to say? Something like this anyway. It happens over and over and over again in our universities. Well, you know what? I know you love your mom and dad. They're wonderful people. I'm sure they've been great parents to you. But, you know, they're just a little bit misinformed on this. Now, you've already punted because you had an opportunity to tell them, listen, Darwinism doesn't make sense, and this is one of the reasons why it doesn't. Darwinism, no, Darwinism doesn't line up with the Bible. The Bible indicates that an infinite personal God created the universe. And there's more evidence, Junior, for that than there is anything Darwin ever said. Think about it. I, I love the way my dad did me. You know, I, I was taking, uh, in, in comparative vertebrate anatomy, which is basically a course on uh, macroevolution, uh, I remember coming home and telling dad, well, the professor has said that evolution's a fact. It's not a theory, it's a fact. And I remember, I remember distinctly him saying, I don't want any of you Christians putting any pamphlets underneath my door and trying to convert me. If I ever find out who it is, you will fail this class. Flexible fellow. <laughs> but I remember going home talking to Dad about it. Dad was a mechanical engineer, and he said, really, it's, it's a fact? I said, well, what, what kind of information do they give you to prove that it's a fact? And I said, well, we don't have it yet. He said, well, let me know when you get it. You know? <laughs> and he was serious. Look into it. Explore it and see if it matches up. 
to reason. He wasn't afraid to let me take a look into that. And I'm not afraid for my kids to look at it either because guess what? It's not going to stand up. The Bible will stand up every time. But we can't just, he didn't say, well, just believe. Ignore all that. Ignore all that fact. I looked at the facts, and guess what? At the end of the semester, I realized more than ever evolution was nonsense, macroevolution. Complete nonsense. Now, in order for us to be able to give these honest answers to honest questions, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, it may push us a little bit outside of our comfort zone. Oh, boy, I remember several years ago we did a conference on apologetics at the church. First time we had done one was that maybe six, seven years ago, something like that. Oh, my goodness. I know that pushed a lot of us out of our comfort zone. But I'm telling you, if we're going to be able to give honest answers to honest questions to either our children or our grandchildren, if your kids are already gone, you're going to have grandchildren asking you questions too. Maybe it means that we need to expand our reading just a little bit so that we can do this. It's our responsibility to be able to say, okay, I don't believe in macroevolution. Well, this is why. But if we just keep telling people, just believe we're doing the, the Christian faith much harm in our country, the Pentecostals, have done incredibly, uh, incredible amounts of good in various parts of the world. They have spread the gospel. Everywhere I go, the Pentecostals have been there first. I'm so appreciative because they have given people the gospel. But there's another thing that they've also spread that is not so good, and that's, that, that's an anti-intellectual appearance. I'm sorry, but some of the things that are on TBN, and I don't mean to, to offend anybody, but some of the things that are on TBN offend me. You know, as a Christian, they offend me because this is the picture that is being portrayed is that there were a bunch of dunces. Listen, we've got to be able to give honest answers to honest questions. And back to Kierkegaard, I love Kierkegaard. He was a great guy. From all, for all I can read, he was a very moral person and a, and a good Bible teacher as well as a philosopher. But this thing that he started, that there's no rational basis for the Christian faith, that has done harm. And again, for those who are... PhDs in, in philosophy, I know I'm, I'm oversimplifying what he said, but, but that's, that's the gist of it. That belief in God is a good thing. That Christianity is a good thing, but it's not a rational thing. Well, I'm here to tell you there is evidence for the Christian faith, and the Christian faith is the only rational philosophy to hold. But there are reasons for that. We've discussed the arguments for the existence of God in the past. I'm not going to go back over that. But I've got to tell you, if Christianity is true, it will stand up to examination. That's what I've told my kids when they went away to college. I'm, I'm not afraid for them to, to, to take a look into the Bible for themselves. I'm not afraid for them to take a philosophy class. Because if they're honest, now always remember this, parents and, and students as well. The professor has the power of the grade. And that's, that's a very powerful thing. So I'm not telling you that you have to argue with your professor. I'm just saying, understand, you don't have to believe everything they say. You don't have to believe everything I say. Of course, I don't need to tell you that. I know you don't believe everything I say. <laughs> Most of you believe a lot of what I say, though, and I'm glad of that. But if Christianity is true, it will stand up to examination. It does. And as we've discussed in previous lessons on Genesis, Darwinism does not. It does not stand up. Dar Darwinism doesn't even pretend. It doesn't even pretend to, to account for the existence of life in the first place. It pretends to account for how variations come into play. But, you know, they're curiously silent on that. Or if, they, if they're not, they talk about the primordial soup that was struck by lightning. Well, where did the soup come from? Where did the lightning come from? I mean, these are child's questions, but they can't answer them. 
We must be ready to give honest answers to honest questions. And we've got to overcome this irrational leap of faith kind of idea when it comes to Christianity. Listen, I've got to tell you, with all of my heart, on my deathbed, I don't want to be thinking I made an irrational leap of faith. I I need to have something that is based upon solid reason, and Christianity is. Now, not reason alone. I'm not saying that. Not reason apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I would never say that. But the Holy Spirit uses our reasons, our reason. Now, as I see it, when we get to Genesis chapter 22, and today, by the way, is an introductory lecture, so if, uh, lesson, so if you're looking at it, you're watching, how in the world is he going to get through 19 verses? <laughs> We're not going to do that. But as I see it, there are two introductory issues that we must embrace before we're going to be able to really appreciate Genesis chapter 22 and the narrative therein. And these are the two issues. First and, that, first and foremost, and that is the Christian faith is a rational one. Belief in a theistic God is a rational thing. And placing one's faith in Jesus Christ is a rational thing to do. It's a reasonable thing to do. That's the first thing that we must embrace. And the second, which is actually more pertinent to what's going on in Genesis chapter 22, but we have to go through those other things first because of those who have come before us have kind of, and again, I love Kierkegaard, but kind of messed up the waters a little bit on it. The second thing, though, more germane to the discussion itself is that obeying God, even when his commands appear irrational, is a rational thing to do. Obeying God, even when his commands appear to be irrational, is a rational thing to do. And by by rational, I I mean thinking that is in agreement or consistent with reason. That's the way I'm using that word. One atheistic writer who goes by the pseudonym Todd Angst, which I think is interesting, wrote these words. Theistic faith is belief without justification. That's it, he says. And theistic faith must be belief without justification, as there is no way to justify a belief in the supernatural. Now, if you just joined in, I'm quoting an agnostic atheist skeptic. These are not my words. (laughs) Both deduction and induction are natural processes, he says, and nothing natural can point to its own antithesis, the supernatural. This is precisely, he says, this is precisely why theologians as diverse as Martin Luther and Soren Kierkegaard agree that a theist must begin with a leap of faith. Humans, as limited natural beings, cannot grasp the supernatural, a realm only defined negatively without any universe or discourse, ergo without any identity, end quote. With all due respect to Todd, uh, he couldn't be more wrong about that. He's wrong on many, many points within this statement. On the contrary, Christians exercise a reasonable step step of faith. Not an irrational leap of faith, but a reasonable step of faith. First, because we've been given enough information in nature to know that God exists. In design to know that God exists. The the fact that morals exist demands that transcendent morals exist demands a transcendent moral lawgiver. We've been given enough evidence that Jesus Christ was who he said he was, not just by virtue of what he said, but, but also by what he did, culminating in his resurrection. His works prove that he was the covenant and Messiah to Israel. His resurrection sealed the deal. We've been given evidence. The God of the universe is a God of evidence. He doesn't ask us just to believe. 
I know a lot of us have grown up with that. But we believe based upon reasonable evidence. A reasonable person must evaluate the available evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion. Frankly, given the evidence, given the evidence that's out there for anybody to see, it's irrational, it's irrational to reject either the existence of God or the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. That's the irrational part. It's very rational to accept a theistic God, and it's also a very reasonable, rational thing to look at the evidence and accept the claims of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, a passage that we've studied before, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Listen to this. Because that which is known about God is evident. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what He has made. So they're without excuse. Now people can claim to be atheistic. They can claim that. But deep down in their soul, they're having to suppress the knowledge of the truth because the evidence is staring them right in the face. I love Tony Evans' illustration with regard to this. He illustrates it like a child playing with a beach ball in a swimming pool. And you know that. You've probably done it yourself. You push that beach ball under the water. Now, that's the atheist suppressing the evidence that they have that God exists, ignoring the questions that, that Darwinism leaves on the table. And as long as they keep it suppressed, they're okay, but they have to exert energy to keep that beach ball down. But as soon as they point their energy somewhere else and forget about the beach ball, here it comes popping up. Remember that? Pops up and water splatters all over your face. And here it is. There's the evidence again. It's there. And it must be dealt with by any reasonable, rational person. Now listen, if you're in college or about to go, I invite you to look at the evidence. I invite you to start all over again if that's what it takes. And look at Christianity with a fresh start. You know, Francis Schaeffer had to do that when he moved to Switzerland. He had a crisis of faith after he moved to Switzerland. I'm sure Edith was really happy about that. You took us all the way over here, and you're really not sure we should be here. <laughs> we sold everything and came over here, and Francis says yes. And you know, you know what he said? He said, I'm going to start over from square one. He had a chalet there at Libri. I'm going to start over from square one. And I'm going to rethink through this whole thing because I'm not really sure that what I've devoted my life to is really true. Now, all joking aside, that must have really shocked Edith. And, and you, God bless her for sticking with him through this time. But, but the story goes, he paced and paced in the wintertime in that, the attic of that chalet. And he thought and he reasoned and he looked at the scriptures and he looked at what other people had written. And by the time that winter was over... He came downstairs, I'm sure he had talked to her in the meantime, but he came downstairs and he said, you know what? There is a rational basis for the Christian faith. It is true. You see, Christianity, when examined, will come out on top every time. You don't have to be afraid. Now, what you, what you may need to be concerned with is somebody gets a hold of your, your beloved child and brainwashes them and, and doesn't ask them to look at things reasonably. But that's something you need to talk to your kids about. 
So Romans 1 tells us that there's ample evidence that God exists. You know, whether you look from, through a microscope or whether you're looking through a telescope, whether you study the intricacies of the, of the DNA molecule or whether you're studying astronomy, an intellectually honest individual will come to the conclusion that God exists. There's just too much there to deny. But really, it's the second of the two propositions, as I said. Obeying God, even when his commands appear irrational, is a rational thing to do. That's, that's the, the proposition that is really being addressed here. The only reason I had to go over the things with the existence of God is that Kierkegaard went too far. And it's, it's hurt all of us, I think. But that's the issue that we really need to address, not just in the rest of our time this morning, but especially you'll see it addressed in the next week, maybe two, depending upon how long it takes us to, to cover this. In my view, Kierkegaard threw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater in his analysis of Genesis chapter 22. Yes, from Abraham's perspective, from Abraham's perspective, God has given him in this chapter what is clearly an irrational order. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then in verse 2, and he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, to us as the reader of Genesis. We've got information that Abraham doesn't have. We know it's a test. And I think, the, this is just my opinion, but I think that the reason that the Holy Spirit put that in the first two verses is because we would be shocked right out of our socks if we didn't know this was a test. We would, we would be wondering, what in the world is God doing? Is he advocating child sacrifice? What's going on here? That all the things that have been discussed, as I said, beginning throughout the centuries... But we know from the first, right from the get-go that this is a test. So it's easier on us than it is on Abraham. But Abraham didn't have this narrative. It wasn't like God came up and said, hey, listen, Abraham, I'm going to give you a test. Now, this is what I want you to do. No, he didn't have that first sentence. Take now your son, your only son. Now, is that his only son? No, no, that's, that's a unique son. That's, that's a, the special son. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Now, the land of Moriah is, by all accounts, it's either right on the Temple Mount now or very, very close to it. So where Abraham is going to take Isaac is to the Temple, what will later become, oh, about 1800, well, no, not 18, but, but many, many years later when, when Solomon comes along, it will become the Temple Mount. This is the place. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, that's shocking. Abraham doesn't know it's a test. It's shocking to him. From Abraham's perspective, now watch. This is key. This will help you to understand Genesis 22, and I hope you'll be able to fit it into your schedule and be back next week because Genesis 22 is life-changing. It really is. It's one of the most significant events that's ever happened in human history outside the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Genesis 22 is huge. But it'll help us if we understand from Abraham's perspective, with the with limited knowledge that he had, this is very irrational. 
So he's faced with a test. You see, for Abraham, the order was irrational. But the God who gave it was trustworthy. See, that's, that's I think, what Kierkegaard missed. The order is irrational. But belief in God who gave the order is not irrational. This passage is therefore not asserting that faith in God is an irrational leap. Or at least to believe in God's existence is an irrational leap. No, no. Abraham reasonably believed in God. This passage presents a man so mature in his faith, so reasonably sure of his faith, that he's willing to obey an order he doesn't understand. Now, that's what I want us to take from this. He is so mature, he so trusts God, that he's willing to obey an order that he doesn't totally understand. And that's big, because most Christians from time to time are faced with situations, or probably more appropriately put, dilemmas, where we know what God has instructed us to do. But we have trouble obeying the command we know what we're supposed to do but we have trouble obeying it in the particular situation that we find ourselves in the the command may appear to be irrational or even unreasonable just like abraham's command maybe not to that degree but just like abraham thought that that was an irrational thing to do but we're going to find out if you've read ahead you know he does it anyway and then he stopped at the last moment We, we sometimes are faced with these types of situations i had a If I could illustrate it this way, I had an intriguing conversation a number of years ago with a very, very wonderful, and I emphasize that, I'm not just saying, a wonderful Christian lady that went something like this. She says, Bruce, I want to marry Bob. Now change the names to protect the innocent. I want to marry Bob. And I said, well, great, tell me about him. Oh, he's a wonderful person. He's got incredible integrity. He's funny. He's smart. He's handsome. And he treats me better than anyone ever has. I really love him. Well, I said, sounds like you got a really good one there. Well, where does he attend church? Well, right now he doesn't. Well, I see. Well, I assume he's a believer in the Lord Jesus. Well, not actually, but, but he's interested in spiritual things. And I'm sure, around, I'm sure it's going to come around eventually. I said, well, you know, Pam, and again, I'm changing the names to protect the innocent. The scriptures are, are pretty clear that a believer's not supposed to marry an unbeliever. I know, I know, I know, but I love him so much. And he loves me. There's no way that God doesn't want me to marry him. There's no way. Why would God bring someone into my life, allow me to love him in this way, and then tell me I can't do it? It makes no sense. Now, although you may not have faced the exact same situation, most of us, quite frankly, have encountered something similar. I'm told to forgive against all odds. It doesn't make sense for me to forgive that person. I'm told that I shouldn't steal when it looks like maybe if I took that, maybe I could use some of the money to help the church. You know, all the silly things that go through our heads we may find ourselves in some sort of moral or ethical situation, and then wham, just bammo, we come face to face with a clear command from God that prescribes really the opposite of what we think that we should do. And, and we can't make it fit into our rational grid. 
So we end up doing what makes sense to us and not what God commanded us. Now, I want to make it clear. I'm not speaking here of maybe a command that's misunderstood or, or maybe that's open for interpretation. It has a variety of interpretations. We're not speaking about that at all. In this, we're speaking about a clear mandate from God. Abraham had a clear mandate from God as to what he should do. There, there was no ambivalence there. God didn't stutter when he said it. He was, he was given a command to behave in a specific way, prescribed specifically, and it was properly understood by Abraham. That's what we're talking about here. So when we come to something like that, and the thing about the marriage was only one illustration. We all have our own situations that we have faced. If you're alive, you have a situation you face that's similar to this. That's why it's such an important passage. When we come to these things, we're at the proverbial crossroads. Am I going to obey in spite of the fact that it doesn't make sense to me given my current situation? Or am I going to disobey a, this is the key, clear, uh, the key word, clear mandate? Am I going to disobey a clear mandate? Of God, because to me, the mandate doesn't really make sense. And one of the first things we need to understand is the to me part. You see, I don't have all the information that God has. Do we really trust God? We've trusted Him for our salvation. Can we trust Him to, to be obeyed, even when sometimes for our grid, for the information we have, it just doesn't make sense? Again, I'm talking about clear commands. I'm not talking about things that, of which people are, there's great debate about. I'm talking about very clear things. Now, if you've read ahead, you know this, this is exactly what Abraham is facing. And his response is highly instructive. Calvin wrote on this passage, he said, Whenever the Lord gives a command, many things are perpetually occurring to enfeeble our purpose. Means fail. We are destitute of counsel. All avenues seem closed. In such straits, he writes, the only remedy against despondency is to leave the event to God in order that he may open up a way when there is none. For us, or for as we act unjustly toward God, when we hope for nothing from him but what our senses can perceive, so we pay him the highest honor when in the affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. The passage that we begin to study this morning and that we'll study over the next couple of weeks is a perfect example of a man who was steeped in the affairs of perplexity. Yet he nevertheless acquiesced entirely to the providence of God. The command that I read a moment ago that comes from verse 2 could not have made sense to Abraham. No way. He didn't have enough information to analyze God's order as being a rational one. Now, again, we do as the reader of this text. We, we know that it's a test. Abraham doesn't. From Abraham's perspective, this is massive. How long had he waited for this boy? The child of the promise, he's given this boy in a miraculous way. Think about all the things that have happened to Abraham up until now. Because the order may appear to be irrational, but Abraham knew and trusted the God who gave the order. God supernaturally called Abraham to leave his homeland and 
moved to a place that he'd never seen. He does it and it works out. Along the way, God promises him incredible things, including the fact that a great nation is going to come from him. And that's pretty amazing given the fact in Genesis 11, before the whole narrative really is even getting started, we are told that Sarah is barren. So when chapter 12 tells us that she's a great nation is going to come from Abraham, we're already scratching our heads. Then how in the world is that? How can that happen? One of the things that I love so much is that Abraham was prospered in spite of himself. See, like every, every time Abraham messed up, God made him more wealthy. Well, if that's the way he dealt with all of us, I'd be the richest man in the world. And you'd be second, I think. But, but it's strange how Abraham would mess up and God would give him more. And then against all odds, oh, against all odds, Isaac is born, the child of the promise. This child is born to Sarah when she who has been barren all her life is actually past the menopause, past the normal age of bearing children. So from Abraham's perspective, the order was beyond reason. But this is so important. The God who gave it wasn't. The order itself was beyond Abraham's ability to comprehend, but he had such faith and trust in the God who gave it that he exercises perhaps the greatest act of faith in the Old Testament. Absolutely incredible. Abraham trusted God against his perception of reason with regard to that command. Now, he had, he had every reason to believe that God existed. God had spoken to him. He had every reason to believe that God loves him and has his best interest in heart. God had proven that over and over and over again. Just like he's done to us. And then, then we read in the scriptures that, that someone wrongs me and I'm supposed to forgive them. And I say, God, that makes no sense. You don't know what they've done to me. He does. He already knows that. It may seem like an irrational thing. I'm supposed to forgive them for doing that to me? Yes, that's what he said. It's not, it's not, he didn't stutter there either, by the way. Or, or whatever it may be that, that we're having trouble with. I know sometimes the commands may seem like they don't make sense, but... God makes sense. Always has. And we've trusted Him to do the biggest thing that we could ever trust Him for, and that's to rescue us from the fear of death, from death itself. We've got members of our congregation that are on their deathbed right now. They're on their bed of death right now. We need to be praying for these people, that, they'll, that their strength and their Faith will continue strong until the end. But these are very fine people, and, and they love God very much, and they know that they know in whom they have believed. And they are confident that, that God is able to guard that which they have entrusted to Him until that day. Now, I hope we don't have to get on our deathbed to where we start having that kind of faith. We need to have it every day in everything that we do. And once we understand something as a clear command, once more, one more time, not something that's uh, where, there's, where it's still open for discussion, but I'm talking about a clear command. Once we understand that, then we need to follow it because we trust the God who gave the command, even if I don't understand the why of the command. How appalled we are in the grocery store when we walk along and we see a woman and her young child, 
and the mother tells the child something to do, and the child looks up and says, why? Why should I do that? You know, we think, hey, listen, do what your mama says. You know, you know what my dad told me, my mom told me? Same year she told you. Why should I do that? Because I said so. <laughs> because, because I should trust my parents because my trust was in them. You see, they were trustworthy. So I could trust a command that they gave when it may not have been something that made sense to me. When, when my son Bruce was about three years old, he was old enough to talk and walk, about, about three years old, I think. We were at church one day, and, and he loved to play. He, was, he still is full of life. And uh, he, he loved to do these things. And, and at the church we attended at the time, there was this big, long playground in the middle of the church. And the kids would just run and play and throw stuff. And if you were an adult, you had to make sure you stayed out of that area because you were going to get hit in the head. But it was fun to sit back and watch him. And, and I remember one day, Cindy and I got the car, and we, we pulled around to this almost kind of this, almost an alley-like thing that, where the kids would, would come out, and they would get into the cars with the parents. Now, I was sitting there one day in my car, and, and here comes Bruce. I'll never forget the look on his face. He was just trucking along. He just a big grin from ear to ear. He just had a ball. And I looked at him coming, and then I looked in my rearview mirror. And I saw a car that apparently didn't know that that's where all the kids came out. And so it was coming a little bit of a faster speed than you would have liked for it to come in that area where kids play. And it, it was blind for this person in the car. It was also blind for Bruce as he was running. I still remember to this day, it gives me chills to, to see this unfolding. Here's Bruce running down this corridor. He doesn't see the car coming. Here's a car that gets out of line and starts passing everybody, doesn't know that kids are fixing to run out. I see both things happening at the same time. I roll my window down and I yell, Bruce, stop! And he did. He stopped on a dime. I never, I never forget how he stopped either. It's almost like a cartoon. You know, he stops like this. And the car whizzed right past. Now, if he, had a, if he had kept running and said, I don't understand why you want me to stop. There you are. I'm finished playing. Here we go. Then he certainly would have been killed. I mean, there's no way he could have survived that collision. But because he trusted me as his father, I had proven myself trustworthy, I guess, to a three-year-old, but, but because he trusted me as his father, he's alive today. Now, that order may not have made sense to him at that time, but he obeyed me because he trusted me. And that's exactly what Abraham's going to do. Yes, the order seems absurd to Abraham. But Abraham trusted the God who gave the order. So what Abraham does in this passage is not an irrational leap of faith because he trusts the God who gave the order. He had every reason to believe that God was trustworthy even if he didn't understand this particular command. It would be difficult to overstate the importance of this for our own spiritual lives. I don't think I could do it. When we obey the commands of God in spite of an urge not to, which is motivated by our intellect and reason, it's, it's not an irrational leap of faith. When I obey God because I trust God, not because I understand the order, but because I trust Him, to have my best interest in mind. To have all the facts. Someday when we get to heaven, we're going to realize how few facts we really had on this earth. 
just just a grain of salt or sand on the on the entire ocean. That's the information we had, and God knows everything with all of its contingencies. Amazing. I need to trust him. I don't know what the problem is. Either we don't sometimes we don't trust that God's really good and that he has our best interests in mind, or we may we may not trust that he really has all the facts. It's probably one or the other. But, but this narrative on Abraham is going to issue us all a challenge. Because we're going to face things in life that don't make sense to us. But when the command of God is clear, we should follow it. Because we trust the God who is giving the order. Heavenly Father, what a great example Abraham is for us. Thank you for this narrative. Thank you for the challenge. Now, as we sit here today, we, we know, Father, that we all, every single one of us in this room, has made mistakes in this area. We, we are alive. We're, we're human beings with a sinful nature, and we know that there have been times in the past where we've all made decisions that, that we knew were contrary to what you wanted us to do. Forgive us, Father, for not trusting you, and help us in the future to, to love you so much and to trust you so much and to realize that you have our best interests in mind, that as we go forth from this day, for we can't undo what's been done, and we know that, but as we go forth from this day, may we trust you with our very lives. We've trusted you with our eternal life. May we trust you enough to obey you in the time that we have here on this earth. I know it's not going to be an easy thing, so I pray that the Holy Spirit would work within each of us to make this a reality. So that as we go forth from this point, we may truly honor and glorify you with our lives. And we'll ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.